0: Don't Miss a Beat is a podcast series brought to you by the law firm of Saul, Ewing, Arnstein & Lear that covers views from diverse constituencies within the food, beverage, and agribusiness, also known as FBA, sector. Hosted by Jonathan Havens and Kermit Nash, co-chairs of the firm's FBA group, episode guests offer various perspectives on a variety of legal, policy, and industry developments, day-to-day FBA issues, best practices, and the road ahead.
1: Hi, everyone. This is Jonathan Havens. I am co-chair of the food, beverage, and agribusiness practice at Saul, Ewing, Ernstein, and Lear. Thank you so much for joining us on yet another episode of our podcast, Don't Miss a Beat. I am thrilled to be joined today by my friend and former colleague, Tony Pavel, who currently serves as the senior food lawyer and global food law team lead at Cargill. Tony, thanks so much for joining us in today's episode of Don't Miss a Beat. As your former associate, I can say I've been looking forward to this day for a very, very long time for once you are in the hot seat. Uh, all kidding aside, when we first launched this podcast, I, uh, I actually, you know, you were one of the first people that popped into my mind and I uh, can think of no better guest to, uh, to be on our podcast than you. So we really appreciate you being here.
0: Well, thank you, Jonathan. I'm, I'm glad to be here and look forward to the conversation. Really appreciate the invite.
1: Thanks. So in preparing for our discussion today, like I, uh, I never came to your office unprepared, I, uh, I did a little bit of homework, and I did some reading on Cargill. And uh, while those of us in the space certainly know Cargill, it's a well-known name and commodity to us, I was reading in a NASDAQ article that Cargill is one of the 10 biggest companies that, quote, you've never heard of. You know, once our audience members hear a little bit more from you about Cargill's portfolio, I'm sure they'll never forget the name Cargill and remember all the great things that you all are doing. But, um, you know, with that, I want to be quiet, step aside and let you talk a little bit about Cargill and, you know, talk about your role. What does a senior food lawyer do at a company like Cargill? Sure. Thanks, Jonathan.
0: Well, um, I I have heard that a few times and every once in a while you'll say Cargill and people will say, you know, Carhartt, like the jeans. um, And you say, no, 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 Cargill. Um, Cargill is, is a, a, very cool company, so it's over 150 years old. We have over 100 150,000 employees globally um, operate I and mean, I'm gonna forget the exact number of companies, but we have a, a large global footprint. Um, and as you mentioned, we're one of the largest privately held companies in the United States. I like to say I work for a, a nice small family owned business, but Cargill and, and it started off in, with grain trading in the Midwest um, and it has you know, organically grown over 150 years to the footprint it, it has now and, and within Cargill globally. We have some core enterprises. So there's our animal animal nutrition business, which is animal feed and premixes, um, and that's across most most species from pet through farmed species. We have a very large aqua feed business as well, and then we have our food ingredients and bioindustrial. Food ingredients would be everything from stevia sweeteners to starches to a range of ingredients that you would typically find in, in the foods you're buying at the grocery store. Bioindustrial can overlap with food and non-food uses. So we have a, I would say Cargill is actually one of the, 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 the most sophisticated large-scale bioindustrial fermentation companies in the world. We have really strong expertise in the space. And that can be from we have a cosmetic ingredients business that's bioindustrial, and then you have products that could go into home cleaners, uh, to things that are additives that go into asphalt, road salt, etc. We have our protein business, which encompasses both traditional protein, beef. In Turkey, Cargill doesn't have any pork operations right now, but also alternative proteins that are coming on the market, so uh, plant-based proteins, and we have some investments in cellular-based protein as well. Then we have our ag supply chain business, which is what I think, you know, when you when you go to the Midwest or, you know, when I'm down in North Carolina at the family farm, that's what Cargill is known, really known historically in the U.S. within the um, agricultural sector, and that is, you know, sourcing soy, corn, specialty crops, and trading those crops, uh, consolidating. We also have a large, within that part of it, vegetable oil business, so soybean oil, canola oil, sunflower oil, etc. And, and, you know, all of these can feed into food service and both the restaurant and consumer. Uh, but we do, you know, part of the reason Cargill isn't broadly known is we sort of sit in, in many regards in the middle of that supply chain. Right? right. We have we have the origination at the farm level and then we're distributing or further processing and, and creating either new products that are, are going into others or um, we do have, particularly in the feed space, we have a, a broader range of brand, branded products. And then again, when you look globally too, there's going to be differences. So in, in Brazil and India, we have far more, more consumer products than we have in in North America. The, the most, I think, common Cargill product that people would be familiar with would be Truvia Stevia, which is is broadly available and was the first stevia brought to the market in the US um, as a non-dietary ingredient. So it's, and that's kind of part of the fun, you know, Jonathan, when part of the, the fun for me, when I came into Cargill, um, you know, my life didn't change that much from when we were working together in private practice, but instead of having 70 different clients, I have 70 clients that are all under one corporate umbrella uh with these businesses and our global footprint so to that end i mean my the work i do is something that you'd be pretty familiar with on your end with probably slightly more of an international aspect than when when i was in private practice Um, so i work with our businesses across you know any of our businesses that are engaged in in food or feed um, to help with both uh, in terms of regulatory compliance, implementing programs, working with our advocacy teams, uh, working with scientific and regulatory affairs for market access strategy and, and approval prosecution of uh, new ingredient approvals. Um, it's very much it remains, you know, what what I described as a it's a regulatory counseling practice with the. You know, be added with the, the difference being that I'm in house and, and it is structured in this sort of enterprise and then regional way. We have a, a global food law team where we have experience. We have another really experienced food lawyer in in um, in Minnesota in Minneapolis uh, who actually also started in D.C. At, at Hyman Phelps before going to General Mills and then and then over to Cargill. We have another dedicated food lawyer in Brussels, well, just outside of Brussels, and then one in Brazil, as well as one in China. Um, so that's our sort of our, our, the structure of our, our global food law team. And then typically, you know, not too dissimilar from private practice. The primary folks we're working with on a day to day basis are, you know, our food safety professionals, our regulatory professionals, uh, and then coordinating with our commercial lawyers where those intersections are between the sort of regulatory strategy, compliance and implementation to be the deal making, the contracts and execution of getting that product to the customer.
1: Great. That uh, gives, gives our audience members a, a good insight into what Cargill does, which I would characterize as, but wait, there's more, right? You, as, as much as you think, you know, there's there's more and a lot of it in the U- U.S. or North America as you said, it's B2B. Obviously, when you go outside of the US, there are some brand names that are recognizable. But um, if you eat food, y- you've consumed a product that Cargill has had something to do with as far as I'm concerned. Uh, yeah,
0: no, it's, it, there's a very high likelihood of at some point in your life, you've had some Cargill ingredients. And that's, you know, another piece of why I, I'm, I'm proud to be at Cargill. And part of the decision why I came, you know, Cargill has, you know, from our guiding principles, the first guiding principle is we obey the law. Our word is our bond and food safety is, you know, the the, the mission of the company is nourishing the world in a safe, responsible and sustainable way. And there, we really have a lot of, of really smart, dedicated people who are pushing, you know, pushing the company forward towards those goals. It's a really cool platform to be working from because you get to um know really work on some of these policy issues that that are near and dear to me um and to the larger you know as you know i've been one way or another involved with the food industry for for the bulk of my my life so it provides a lot of cool opportunities and to your point it's uh, i'd say maybe not weekly but let's call it monthly i'll get an email or a phone call and i say oh I didn't know we made those. Um, so <laughs> it's, uh, and you know, I'm, I've been here five years and I, they, there's still plenty of, of new and interesting that comes my way.
1: Well, that shouldn't make the rest of us feel bad that we don't exactly know the scope, but uh, much appreciated. So, you know, a lot of what I learned about food law was really from you, from working with you. Uh, you know, so to me, while food law hasn't it's never been uncomplicated. It seems to me, and maybe I'm wrong about this, that it's gotten even more complicated. You know, Whether you're talking about traceability or the ever increasing globalization of the supply chains to consumers wanting to be armed with all sorts of information under the sun, you know, it can be hard to, to keep up. So I guess two part question, one is, do, am I right? You know, has it become more complicated? Uh, and even if it's not, I know that it's difficult to keep up because of the diverse constituencies that you serve and how big Cargill is as a company. So how do you keep up with it all? I know you referenced your team, of course, but you know, there's a lot that you have on your plate, no pun intended. So, you know, both the complicated nature of the industry or not, and then, you know, how you keep up with it.
0: Yeah, I I would say you're absolutely correct. I'd say there's been Bigger changes and more complications over the course of the last five, six years then, and again, there's a big FSMA component to this in, in the US, but I, I think we're seeing that mirrored
1: elsewhere. And just for uh, our audience members, FSMA, FDA uh, Food Safety Modernization Act, biggest overhaul to food safety in what, 70 years, something? Yeah, like Yep. So and
0: that was, you know, that was 2011, right? And we're, we're still, we now, the traceability proposed rule just came out. Uh, what was it, a month or a couple of months a month ago. So we're still not done with the rulemaking for that. But globally, and I think, and you know, this is a bit of a chicken and the egg question in my mind, you know, I think FISMA moved the bar in terms of, in, in many respects, transparency, traceability, the paperwork chain up and down the supply chain. And You see similar now, you know, I I would argue the EU was might have been slightly ahead of where FDA was in terms of some of that. And I I think that that balance has shifted a little bit. Um, But ultimately, what it's done is introduced more complexity and not only from a domestic, but from an international perspective, right, Mm -hmm. both in terms of the level of transparency and the amount of information that's being looked at. both by us and our customers, when you're talking about supplier qualification, new product qualification, et cetera. And that in and of itself, that shift. So, you know, pre-FISMA in the food world, number one, in in the US, there was no outside of USDA FSIS, while most of industry had HACCP programs in place, it wasn't mandated. Now we have, um, you know, HARPSY or updated HACCP, and that applied both to food and feed. And you're seeing in the feed world a lot more scrutiny than you previously would have would have seen, particularly in the U.S., where you have the split uh, regulation between the federal and the state. Um, and the games, I would argue that the game has changed uh, in, in a material respect from when you and I were sort of growing up as, in, in the law firm world and our mentors who had come out of the agencies, whether we're talking about FDA or FSIS, there really has been a, a shift, uh, I would say, in both the volume and complexity. I think this new traceability proposed rule sort of reflects that. If, if you dig into that a little bit and look at, at the really data-driven approach that FDA is taking towards the data elements that has been proposed within this rule. So... Yeah, I, I, I think it's it's really been. I think the next five years we're going to see even more complexity growing. And, and the other factor here that I, I always try not to forget too is also testing capability, right? Yeah. Um, you know, this isn't something new. Chasing zero when it comes to analytical testing has been with us forever. But you know, the ability for rapid testing down to you know 0.5 part per billion. Uh, you know, we are seeing particularly when, you know, you can get analytics down into the parts per trillion if you have, you know, the right equipment and mass spec available. Uh, and I think that creates different challenges in, in the food world. And you can talk about them in the context of allergen thresholds or contaminant thresholds. You know, I'm thinking about things like arsenic in rice, depending on the growing region and inorganic versus organic and the ability to detect those things. And one of the things that the industry needs to think about is, you know, where those quality and safety standards are set, right? When, when you get to that point of 750 parts per trillion is, is that a toxicological impact or is that data that's going to be out there and needs to put, be put into context um, right. because of, you know, when you grow things in nature, they pull them out of the soil. Now, to your other question, um, it's tough to keep up, but it's a lot of the same same things that, that we used to do. I read the trade press. I read all my food law and cannabis law updates from you, Jonathan, um, and a combination of that. And then also, you know, the trade associations, to the extent that I have the ability to participate in some subset of various trade association meetings, it's always been you know, a key way to keep abreast of developments in in those particular sectors of the food and feed worlds, but you know I do not necessarily have the I, I don't always have the luxury, for example, to go back and, and read a preamble. And there, uh,
1: oh, no one's ever described reading a preamble as a luxury, by the way. I think that's a, f- a first on this and many other podcasts.
0: Oh, come on. That's the best part of the regulations. <laughs> that's where all the good stuff is, Jonathan. You know this. But so, you know, and part of that, you know, I lean on my team. Uh, so, you know, and especially when I'm th- in, in a global environment, I'm not nearly smart enough to keep up with everything that's going on in the EU and South America and every development in Australia, and New Zealand. So I, you know, I do lean on my team to, to make sure that I'm, I'm at least aware at a high level of, of significant changes. And, you know, we've got sort of all the post-Brexit stuff is coming out of uh, FSA in the UK now. Um, so it's a bit of a mishmash, but I, I would say at the high level, right, it's, Reading the trade press as much as I can, tapping into my network as much as I can, leveraging the trade associations where I can. And then, and then my internal between my food law team and then our, our global regulatory teams, I might not be able to, to dive into the weeds, but I do my best at least to know what's happening at that, sure. you know, that top level. Sure. Um, but it's, it's a lot. There's, a, you know, there's, there's been a lot going on.
1: Yes, there has. So your comment about post-Brexit is a great segue and leads us into our last topic with our just remaining couple of minutes left. So obviously, we're coming out of a fairly contentious election cycle. Um, Any thoughts on U.S. uh, federal regulations or regulators and how the picture landscape might change, Um, you know, whether it's regarding FDA or USDA or otherwise, you know, I think you and I both understand that there's not going to be this massive sweep out of regulators with a change in, in president. A lot of the top political appointed positions certainly could be. But, you know, you spend so much time keeping abreast of these developments. And, you know, sometimes people forget about changes in administration could mean changes of policy. Any sort of outlook? I know it's still early in the U.S., but as we hear about these appointments or policy initiatives, any sense of what the future might hold?
0: Yeah, I mean, and, and I think I'm going to try to limit my my scope to I'd say like FDA, USDA, FSIS, um, because I do think depending on there are probably some other executive agencies that are going to see bigger or or more significant administration change effects within the agencies. But I, I would kind of argue, and and I think we've had this discussion in the in the past, Jonathan. But I would argue that that FDA. In USDA didn't really skip too many beats between the Obama administration and the Trump administration. Agreed. Agreed. Um, and, and that's whether you are, are looking at, at rulemaking, at, at enforcement levels. These are two agencies that um, are largely made up of, of, you know, career scientific staff, Many of whom have been there for a long time. They're they're very dedicated to the agency's mission, and, and I find it hard to, to point to a significant change in the last four years versus the, the four years that preceded. Um, you know, I think there are a few areas where. You know, I, I think there has been, and in, in without getting too specific, I think with some. Rulemaking and policy development, I, I, I think there have been instances where there hasn't been, I, I'd argue, even not as much transparency or communication with regulated industry. I, I think that is one piece where, you know, if, if I were to advocate that I'd want to make sure that when there is policy development or regulation making that that there is, and, and that's not just industry, of course, that there, there should be transparent dialogue with Affected stakeholders, right? Whether we're talking academia, you know, NGO world industry consumers. I do think that that's an important piece. I I don't know if, you know, like there's a few sort of higher level things like the two for one rulemaking, you know, executive order, I could see that going away. Now we do have this new, you know, HHS proposed rule that that wanted to, you know, propose review and sunset of all a vast majority of HHS regulations. That's in play now. Um, but I do think what what some of these actions will do is is prompt some that proposed rule has to be addressed. But I do think there might be in lieu of these these more uh, dictatorial approaches that it will perhaps spur some of the hhs agencies etc to look at some of the older regulations and as you know in fda world we have standards of identity that go back to the 1940s 1950s Absolutely. right and in fda yes there's an soi project going on but you know move there's always an agency resource and priorities so you know, I expect, you know, to me, the big questions are going to be where are those policy focuses going to be at the agencies? You know, I would say at FDA, for example, in the last four years, particularly during where Scott Gottlieb was leading the agency, I was actually pretty pleasantly surprised at the focus the agency had on the food side from someone who was really, you know, in my mind from his previous times at the agency, it was much more of a pharma focused career but you know, there really was a strong focus from the top of the house down at, at FDA. You know, and I, I think what, you know, whether the question becomes, is there a stronger focus on nutrition? You know, how much do any of the FSMA priorities shift or get adjusted with the new administration? And then you know, FSIS, I think a lot of the ongoing programs, uh, I expect them to continue. And the question is you know, where those agency focuses gonna be. So yeah, it's not the most exciting answer, but I don't see a big tectonic shift happening. Um, no, I
1: think, I think it was a great answer. And your, you know, your statement about the one in two out policy and broader kind of government or regulatory overhaul initiatives, those are the ones I think that could maybe have an impact. But you know, the, the folks at SIFSAN, the Center for Food Safety and Applied Nutrition at FDA, are the folks at the Food Safety Inspection Service at USDA that are really governing the day-to-day lives of stakeholders that we've been talking about that's not really going to change too much, or it's expected that it's not going to. But if you start mandating that agencies like FDA, which have long since regulated by, you know, unenforceable guidance documents, or or that's some people would argue that, um, you know, if if they have to send all their guidance to OMB, or if they have to pull back two regulations for every regulation they issue, those are the sorts of things that could have more of a meaningful impact than, okay, well, what's an election going to do to change day-to-day at CIFSAN or FSIS, which is Probably not very much. So yeah, no, I totally agree. But
0: yeah, no, to me that becomes the real question: is is where are those priorities going to be? And the other concern I have is funding for the agencies, right? Because at the end of the day, I'm a bit more bullish on this that I think having a well-funded, well-staffed FDA and USDA FSIS is critical. And 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 again, you know, those those are our regulators, but at the same time. For, for consumer trust, right? You know, we want, I want a strong FDA, I want a strong USDA FSIS. So when people see that mark of inspection, they know the food has been inspected, it's safe and wholesome. And with, again, you know, when we think about the government expenditures and the challenges of the last nine, 10 months, you know, I think one of the things that, that we'll have to be contended with is making sure that the agencies are getting the funding they need, and the staffing they need and that that it's not only that that food safety; it's also the innovation side, right? In in, in order to get, as you are 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 pro- acutely aware of, right, getting new ingredients through the process, that takes staffing, right, and it takes resources to keep those reviews moving uh, in an efficient and and reliable way. So that's the piece, which is is less political but more sort of government coffers kind of of concern I have as we, we enter into the next couple of years because there's a lot of expenses for the government right now.
1: Yep, you know, you want robust staff with room for forward thinking, out of the box ideas to get newer products on the market. I, you're absolutely you. right about that. So as I, as I promised it would, the time went by pretty quickly. Um, Tony, really wanted to say thank you so much again. Uh, it's really a thrill to speak with you as always. Um, you know, you've taught me quite a bit. And uh, as I said, when we were launching this podcast, I said, Tony Pavel has got to be one of our first uh, episodes. So we really appreciate it. And uh, for all of our listeners, please join us on uh, the next episode of Don't Miss a Beat. If you have any feedback, we'd certainly love to hear about it. Leave us a comment wherever you download your podcasts or shoot us an email, you know where to find us. So again, Tony, thanks so much and uh, wishing everyone a happy and healthy holiday season and new year. Thank you, Jonathan.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of Don't Miss a Beat, brought to you by the law firm of Saul Ewing, Arnstein & Lear. Please be sure to subscribe to hear more podcast episodes related to developments in the food, beverage, and agriculture industry.